0: Bibles to Luke 17. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 17 verses 1 through uh, verses 7 through 10. Uh, Luke chapter 17 verses 7 through 10. If you're using uh, one of the pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 876. Luke chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. Jesus parable of the unworthy servant. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we do ask that you would be with us here this morning. That as Your Word is read and preached, that Your Spirit would be active in and through it, Father. That that we would be humbled, that, that we would be changed, that we would be equipped. That we would bring forth fruit to the praise of Your glory. Father, this is what we long for and this is what we ask for now. In the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We sometimes say that a person has gone above and beyond the call of duty. For example, when my grandmother was no longer able to live at home, she went to go live at a home on Lookout Mountain called Thrive. And the nurses there regularly go above and beyond the call of duty. They are, they are not content to, to do the minimum required of them. They are, they are not content to simply do their job, but rather they, they go out of their way to demonstrate love to their patients. They, they joyfully give themselves away to do whatever is necessary to love and serve their patients to the best of their Ability. and when we see service like that when we when we see people make that kind of sacrifice it is it is something that we recognize as good it is it is something that that compels us not just to give thanks but to give honor we want to recognize and praise those who who serve others in this way because we recognize that what they are doing is indeed praiseworthy And I want you to hear me say this morning that that instinct is right. Such service is good. Such service is praiseworthy. But we have to ask a question. Why do we think that such service is beyond the call of duty? Why do we think it's more than is required of us? Could we not say that such service is our duty? Are we not called to to love our neighbors as ourselves? Are we not called to to put their interests before our own, even at great cost? Are we not called to, to give ourselves away in the pursuit of another's good? Yes, such service is good. It is honorable, but is it really beyond the call of duty? That's the question that Jesus is asking in this task. He is is asking whether the servant who does everything, think about that. You've never known a servant like that. You've, You've never known a servant who does everything that is commanded. But Jesus asked, even if there were such a servant, even if there was a servant who had done everything that was commanded, has he really gone beyond the call of duty? That's the question that Jesus wants us to wrestle with. Look again at the parable. Jesus says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards you may eat and drink. Now I suspect that when we hear the uh, this parable when we hear the, the the words that Jesus are saying when we when we see the picture that he is he is painting we are probably a little uncomfortable we're probably not quite sure that that Jesus meant to say this our modern sensibilities tell us that that this par- the servant is being mistreated this servant is is being treated unjustly he may even be being Abused, we, we think it is wrong for a master to demand such service from one of his servants. After working all day in the field, the servant shouldn't be expected to then come home and delay his own meal, delay taking care of himself so that he can then serve his master supper. It just conflicts with our modern sense of justice, with our, our modern sense of, of fairness. And so we wonder, Jesus, why would you use a picture like this? Is this, is this another situation where Jesus is, is pointing to a thief or something and saying, be like that? Is, is Jesus pointing to an unjust situation? I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. In fact, if you are thinking that this servant is being mistreated, then you won't be able to hear what Jesus is actually saying. Because you have to notice that that Jesus isn't asking whether or not the master should ask so much from his servant. That's not the point. Jesus isn't asking whether this is something a master should do. Rather, he is taking it for granted that this is what a master will do. A master will ask this sort of thing from his servant. Notice the, the way that Jesus begins the parable. He says, will any of you who has... A servant That's sort of a formulaic expression, and it's a, a formula that Jesus uses elsewhere. He, he uses it in, in other parables, and it's a formula that suggests that what he is about to describe is unthinkable. We saw this back in Luke chapter 11. There, Jesus says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now locked and my children are in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I don't know about you, but... The, the response of the man inside sounds reasonable to me. You know, if someone's coming to knock on your door at, at you know, midnight to, to borrow eggs, we would probably be a little perturbed. We'd probably say, well, you know, you, you should have gone to the grocery store earlier in the day. You should have made preparations. It, it sounds reasonable to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get up in the middle of the night to, to help you out. But Jesus sees it other way. He, Jesus says, listen, it would be unthinkable in that culture for the man inside to say such a thing. It would be unthinkable for a man to turn down such a request. And that culture, hospitality, was was central. And it would have been shameful, not only for the man inside, but for his entire village if he had declined such a request. And so Jesus says, who of you has a friend like this? No one. No one has a friend. He he says something similar a little bit uh, later in the same chapter. He says, what father among you if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Again, Jesus is saying that such a thing is unthinkable. It's something that would simply never happen. It's what the phrase, which of you has a father? Which father among you? It's, it's, it's what the formula means. Just as a man would never refuse to give his, his friend bread, even in the middle of the night, so a father would never give his son a serpent or a scorpion when he asked for food, And it's that same formula that Jesus uses here. He says it is unthinkable that when a servant comes in from the field, that his master would say to him, come at once, recline at table. That would never happen. And that is just Jesus' starting point. It is his default assumption. But I want you to see more than this. Not only does Jesus say this would never happen, not only is, is Jesus assuming uh, that a master would never say such a thing, he is also assuming that the master has a right to say such a thing. The master has a right to demand such obedience from his servant. Not only will a master make such demands, but he's, it's okay for him to do so. This is what we see in verse 9. He says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The implied answer is no, of course not. Why? Well, keep reading. Because the servant has merely done what? He has merely done his duty. He has merely done what he was obligated to do. This is the clear implication of what what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that this servant, even when he does everything in this command, even when he works all day in the field and then comes in and and prepares his master servant, he has not gone above and beyond the call of duty On the contrary, he has merely done what he was obligated to do. He has merely done his duty. And before we protest too strongly against this, I I want you to know that there are other texts in the New Testament that talk about the way that masters are to treat their servants. I think of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, for example. There, uh, Paul writes to masters in the church at Ephesus. He says, stop your threatening Knowing that he who is both their master's and yours is in heaven. He gives a very similar instruction in Colossians chapter 4. He says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so what do we see? We, we see that the New Testament is concerned for the well-being of servants. The, 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 the New Testament does put sort of prescriptions upon masters and say that, that you are to treat your, mas- your servants with justice and with respect. You're to recognize that you are not the ultimate master, but that you also have a master in heaven. And so masters are not allowed to abuse their servants. They are not a- allowed to disregard their well-being. But they are allowed to command them. And it was the servant's duty to obey. A servant was to do all that was commanded. This is the the starting point of Jesus' argument. But of course, it's not the point that he's driving home. What is the point that Jesus is driving home? We see that in the comparison that he makes in verse 10. Notice what he says. Turning now to his disciples, he says, So you also, you disciples, you who follow me, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, what Jesus is doing is Jesus wants his disciples to see that even when they have done all that they were commanded, like this servant... They are unworthy servants. He is saying to his disciples simply this. He says, listen, when you do everything that God calls you to, when you do everything that I I give you to do, you have not gone above and beyond. You have in no way put God in your debt. God is in no way inclined to bless you. Now, He is no way obligated to bless you merely because you have done what you were given to do. What you were given to do is what you should have done. What you were given to do was your duty. This is what Jesus means by unworthy servant. We hear that sometimes when we think worthless. You know, Jesus is calling them worthless servants, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that they are worthless, as if they were of no value to God, or as if what they did was of no value to the Master. Jesus is not suggesting that the servant is, is loathsome in God's sight. Not at all. They are not worthless. They are Unworthy. And that means that that they have not earned any sort of bonus or reward. It means that they have not gone above and beyond their their call. They have simply done what they were obligated to do. They They have simply done what was required of them. And therefore, they have not placed God in their debt. They are unworthy because when they have done everything, they have merely done their duty. And there are two things that I think we need to see in that. There are two things that we need to see in this comparison where where Jesus tells us that we must learn to see ourselves as unworthy servants. And the first thing is is maybe a little bit surprising. The first thing that we need to see is simply this, that we are able to do our duty. that's, That's what Jesus is assuming. Jesus says, when you have done everything that was commanded of you, that's Jesus' starting point. And he, he's saying, listen, you are able to do things that are good. You are able to do things that are, that are honorable. You are able to do things that are that are praiseworthy. You are not worthless. That's not what Jesus is saying. You are able to, to do your duty. Sometimes we get so focused on the unworthy servant part that we can miss that. But, but this is actually the starting point because this was the point that Jesus was making in the previous paragraph remember we looked at it before palm sunday the the disciples come to to jesus and they they ask him to increase our faith now what was it that that brought about that that request. Well, it was the commands that Jesus had given them in the previous paragraph. And in verses one and two, Jesus had warned his disciples against being a stumbling block in the, the path of another, especially a, a little one. He says, Do not be the, the cause of their temptation to sin. Do not be a, a stumbling block in their way. He then told them how to avoid this, how to avoid being a stumbling block in verses three and four. And basically what he told them is listen. To avoid being a stumbling block, you need to live in accountable community with one another. Notice what he says. He says, when your brother sins, rebuke him. And when he repents, forgive him. And then repeat as often as necessary. If he, if he sins against you seven times in one day, and he comes to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. This is a, a picture of, of the accountable community that we are to have with one another as believers. We are to we are not to ignore one another's sin. We're not simply to, to overlook it. When we when we see a brother in sin, we are to point it out, we are to rebuke them, but we are to rebuke them in such a way that draws them back, that, that leads them to repentance. And then when they repent, we are to forgive them. We are to extend grace to them. And we are to repeat this as often as necessary. This is how we, how we avoid being a stumbling stone. This is how we are an encouragement to one another. But the disciples recognize how hard that is. They, they recognize how hard it is to, to live with one another with that kind of grace. They recognize first how hard it is to, to confront sin. But then once you've confronted sin, how hard it was to forgive that sin. And they recognize that that while it was hard to do that once, it was clearly impossible for them to do that again and again, even seven times in one day. And so hearing Jesus' commands, hearing what he was calling them to, they, they cry out to their master. They say, Jesus, increase our faith. Now, in a sense, that's exactly the right prayer. In a sense, that's exactly what they they should have said. It reminds me of of the the Father who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith is is a gift. It's something that God gives us. And it is right for us to to cry out to Him, Father, we need You to to increase our faith. We need You to help us grow in our faith. We we are weak. We, we uh, we, We struggle to believe. Help our unbelief. But while it is right and it is good to to cry out to God and to ask Him to to increase our faith, Jesus also understands that that type of prayer can be an excuse. It can be a a rationalization. It can be a, a justification. You see, we sometimes want to rationalize our sin by saying that we just can't help it. We want to rationalize our sin by by saying, well, that's just the way that I am. I I can't do any any better. I'm a sinner. Sin's what I do. It's it's beyond my ability to obey. And so we excuse ourselves from even trying, from even pursuing after obedience. Jesus understands the way the sinful mind works. He understands the dangers inherent in such a prayer. And so He addresses those dangers in verse 6. Notice how Jesus replies to the disciples' request. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. At first it's like, Jesus, did you hear our request? (laughs) Did you hear what we were asking? And Jesus says, no, no, listen. If you had even the smallest speck of faith, then you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I think we know enough to know Jesus isn't really concerned about uprooting trees. But what is he saying? Jesus is saying, listen, if you have even the smallest speck of faith, then you have all you need to do all that I am commanding you to do. Why? Not because faith is so strong. This is not faith in faith. This is not faith in the power of of positive thinking. Why is even the smallest speck of faith enough? The smallest speck of faith is enough because that faith connects you to an all-powerful God. Faith unites you to Christ. And in Christ connects you to the Lord God Almighty. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says all the immeasurable power of God, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all that immeasurable power is now at work in those who believe. In those who have faith. Peter says the same thing. Peter says that in Christ, through faith, we have been given all things that pertain to life. And godliness, all things, everything you need for, for life and godliness is now yours in Christ by faith. That's one of those truths that you just have to let sink in. You have you have to pause and just and just meditate upon that. Do you feel helpless in the face of temptation? Do you feel like you just can't not sin? That, those, are, those are struggles that we that we wrestle with, and they they, they make us want to rationalize, they make us want to, to justify. And Jesus says, No. All the immeasurable power of God is at your disposal. Those who walk in the power of the Spirit do not gratify the desires of the flesh. In Christ, by faith, you have all things that pertain to life in godliness. In Christ, by faith, you are able to do your duty and because we live in an already not yet world because the old man still wages war against our soul yes we will we will continue to struggle and we will continue to fall but all the immeasurable power of god is at our disposal we have all things that pertain to life and godliness we can do true good we can do true uh, we can do things that are truly honorable that are that are truly Praiseworthy, not in our own strength, but in the power of God. As I said, I sometimes don't want to believe that. I, I, I want to believe that I'm not able so that, I can, so that I can justify not renouncing the passions of my flesh or so that I can justify not fleeing from, from temptations to sin. But those are the lies of Satan. It is Satan who tells us we can't. It is, it is Satan that tells us it is hopeless. Jesus says, as my servants, in my name, in my power, you can do your duty. And we need to, we need to see that. There's a, a bumper sticker that I've seen many times. that says, Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. You ever seen that? I've seen it many times. And I know, I think I know what the people mean. But I want you to hear me say this morning, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Christians aren't just forgiven. We, we aren't just pardoned. It's not just that our guilt has been removed. Yes, we are forgiven. Thank God. That is at the heart of the gospel that we believe. In Christ, our guilt has been removed as far as the east is from the west. In Christ, as we heard even this morning, we have been justified by faith and now have peace with God. That is gloriously true. But it's not the whole story. It's not the whole Gospel. The Gospel is is bigger than our justification. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We have been raised together with Christ. Why? To walk in newness of life. So the first thing that we need to see in this text is that, yes, we are able, we are able to do our duty. We are able to do that which is good, that which is praiseworthy, that which is honorable. Please do not hear Jesus saying that you are worthless and that everything you do is worthless. That is not what Jesus is saying. To be an unworthy servant is not to be a worthless servant. But there is a second point here that we must see, and it's actually the main point that Jesus is making. Yes, while while we are able to do our duty, we need to see also that we are not able to do more than our duty. We are able to do our duty, but we are not able to go above and beyond our duty. We are are not able to, to do more than is required of us. Why? Because even when you have done everything, which none of you have, and neither have I, but even if we had done everything, everything that was commanded of us, we would still be unworthy servants. And as I said, this is really the the main point that that Jesus is is driving home. And it's not hard for us to understand why Jesus would, would drive this point home. You see, the moment that we start to recognize that we are able to do things that are actually good... The moment that we begin to recognize that that we do things that are actually praiseworthy, it is so easy for us to to immediately begin to think, well then, okay, if I've done something good, if I've done something that's praiseworthy, if I've done something that's honorable, then then God must owe me. God must owe me for that. That that good work must somehow obligate God. And so quickly we fall into the trap of thinking that, that God owes us. We think that because we have loved our family, because we have served our neighbor, because we have done our work with an integrity, now, therefore, our lives ought to be blessed. We, we should be exempt from, from sickness and from tragedy and from, from hardship. And we should receive a, an extra helping of, of health, wealth, and prosperity. Yes, we don't believe that gospel, but we sort of would like to get some of the benefits. And we might not say it so crassly. We... We know better, our theology is is better. But but we we reveal this sort of thinking, do we not, when we begin to grumble and complain? When we begin to, to grumble and complain against God's providence? Now now hear me, there's a difference between grumbling and groaning. Groaning is not sin. Groaning is, is, is actually right and proper in this present world. We, we are right to groan when we experience the pains of life in the, in the present evil age. Things here are not as they are supposed to be. This, this world that we live in is a world that is perverted and, and polluted by sin, and as a result, life often hurts. We, we often suffer. And Christians are not Stoics when it comes to that pain. We, we do not uh, just absorb that pain with apathy, and nor are we Eastern mystics that say, well, the pain is just an illusion. Just, just pretend it's not there and it will go away. We, no. We groan, Paul says. We groan when we experience the pain of life in this broken world. But grumbling is something different. It's not just groaning at the brokenness of the world we live in. Grumbling is directed at God. Grumbling accuses God of making a mistake. Grumbling accuses God of, of doing something unfair, unjust, maybe even wrong. And I think if we're honest, I think if we, if we look at our, our own words, if we look at our own hearts, we'll have to admit that we not only groan, but we, we grumble. And that grumbling reveals that, that we thought we deserved better from God. We thought somehow that God owed us. And it is that mindset that Jesus is warning us against in these verses. It is is that mindset that Jesus knows is so dangerous and therefore says, you need to recognize that you are an unworthy servant. That even when you have done everything that God has commanded you, even if you had obeyed Him perfectly, He would owe you nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God owes you nothing? Do you believe that that God owes you nothing at all? He doesn't owe you a good life. He doesn't owe you health. He doesn't owe you comfort. He doesn't owe you a good marriage. He doesn't owe you a good family. He doesn't owe you good friends. He doesn't owe you fulfilling work or even gainful employment. He doesn't owe you anything. Even your next breath is a gift of God. Now that's a hard pill to swallow. Just admit it. It it is hard to think in those terms. It is hard to think of yourself as an unworthy servant. It is hard to think that God owes you nothing. It just doesn't seem right. We're Americans after all. We have certain inalienable rights. You know, We, we have rights. It is hard to think of ourselves in these terms. In fact... I think there's probably at least a few here that, that, that hear what Jesus is saying almost as cruel. It is eerily familiar to the abusive parent telling their child, you are worthless. You are nothing. You are an embarrassment. You never do anything right. I don't owe you anything. Ever heard a father talk to his son like that? It, it boils your blood. It makes you angry. And rightly so. Because such language is, is cruel. And therefore we wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing talking to His disciples that way? Why would Jesus be calling on His disciples to see themselves as unworthy servants? The irony that I want you to see this morning is this: that Jesus calls on His disciples, and he, he calls on you and, he, and he calls, on, He calls on us to see ourselves as unworthy servants because He loves us deeply. Jesus speaks this way to His disciples because He knows that their eternal joy depends upon them learning to see themselves as without rights, to see themselves as unworthy servants. Think about it for a moment. If we earned God's favor by our works, Even works done in the power of His grace, okay? Even if you admit, well, I can't do anything good apart from His grace, but by His grace, I've done some good things. And those good things that I've done in the power of His grace now earn His favor. That's what some people think the church means by by grace, that, that you couldn't do anything on your own, but now with His help, you've done some really good things. And so now, because of the things you've done in His power, He owes you. But even if that's what you understand, even if you understand that everything good you've ever done was done only in the power of His grace, if you think He owes you because of what you've done, if you think you've earned His favor by your obedience, then follow that through. That means it's possible for you now to unearn His favor by your disobedience. If it's possible for you to earn it, it's possible for you to lose it. And if your favor with God depends on your ongoing future obedience, then you stand on a foundation of sand. You stand on a foundation that cannot possibly hold. If your favor with God depends upon your obedience, even grace-wrought obedience, then you are without hope. And yet I'm convinced that that this is where so many of us live. Even though our theology is better, even though we profess better with our mouths, this is where we live. We live as if our relationship with God is built upon the foundation of our own righteousness. And therefore, we either walk in utter delusion or we walk in despair. We doubt our Father's Love. We, we doubt that He is truly for us. We, we doubt that He will bless us and that He will work for our good. Rather than trusting Him when He brings us through the, the floods and the fires, rather than believing that He is our Heavenly Father who, who loves us deeply, we, we look at the floods and the f- fires and we say, well, this must be proof that He's not really for us. This must be proof that I'm not really His. If, if I was really His, if He was really for me, He wouldn't let these sorts of things happen. And of course, the moment that we, we start thinking that way, Satan comes along and says, you're right, you've got good evidence to support your, your position. There's a lot of proof that, that God shouldn't love you. There, you are a sinner after all. You fall woefully short, and not just in the past, but today. Even this morning as you were preparing to come for worship. You fell short of the glory of God. We have failed Him again and again and again. And so if you stand upon the the foundation of your own righteousness, if you believe that you have somehow earned His favor, that hope will come crashing down and the fall will be great. And Jesus knows this. And that is why He calls upon us to see ourselves as unworthy servants. That is why he, He calls upon us. To see ourselves as having earned nothing. You see, if you haven't earned it, you can't lose it. If it's been earned for you by another, then it's bought and paid for. That is the the value of the finished work of, of Christ. Christ died for your sins and was raised again for your justification. He did it. You didn't earn it. His blessing is yours because what of what was done for you, not because of what you did. And if that is the foundation upon which you stand, then you stand upon a solid rock, and you have a hope that is unassailable. Because it is not the, the quality of your obedience, even obedience wrought in the power of God's grace, that earns the favor of God. You are His beloved child because you are in Christ Period. That is the hope of the Gospel. That is our hope of glory. We don't like to think of ourselves as unworthy servants, but there is no other hope. If we are servants who have earned our way, then we stand upon sand. But if we are servants who have been bought and paid for by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we can say with Paul, as he says in Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing in all the world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We are His. We are beloved because of what has been done for us. Yes, we are unworthy servants. And there's no better place to be. So let me ask you this morning, simply this, where is your hope this morning? What is your confidence as you stand before God? if you think you have gone gone above and beyond the call of duty, if you you think that you have somehow earned God's favor, then your hope is fleeting and it will put you to shame. Such hope will crash with your failures. Such hope will crash with, with you falling short of the glory of God again and again and again. But if you know your hope is in the finished work of Christ, then your hope is unassailable. You stand upon the eternal rock of ages. You stand upon a rock that cannot be moved. You have a hope that will never put you to shame. You have a hope that will be yours for all eternity. That is the hope that is ours in Christ. It's the hope of an unworthy servant. And because such hope is ours, that is one reason we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Believe it with me. Father God, I do pray that You would give us grace to believe this Gospel. Father, we don't like to, to think of ourselves as unworthy servants. We, we don't like to think of ourselves as having no rights. We, we want to believe that, that maybe with Your help, but, but still, nevertheless, by our own efforts, We have established our righteousness with You and we have earned Your blessing. Father, forgive us for such foolishness and grant us the grace to rest in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. May we stand upon no other rock, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.